From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. We're not live today. We're not taking your phone calls. We're 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 getting a facelift today, Father Wade. We're getting uh, all of the Good. intricate. Will it help my crow's feet? <laughs> all of the uh, all of the intricate computer software behind the scenes that makes everything play when it's supposed to is getting updated today. So, uh, but this is a brand spanking new edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. And uh, like every day, live or otherwise, we have a springboard topic that you like to kick the show off with, and. Um, like do the scripture like smell and taste and see <laughs> yeah and... They, the, they have the five senses of sight smell taste touch and hearing and yeah. they have the four faculties of the soul intellect will memory and imagination so <laughs> basically i, I the... guess that's not what you mean by the senses of scripture <laughs> right 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 so i want to talk about the four senses of scripture that the church teaches about and these are beautifully expounded upon uh in the universal catechism of the catholic church paragraph numbers 115 through 119. There's two parent categories of Scripture, uh, the literal and the spiritual. But the spiritual further breaks down into three subsets, the moral, the allegorical, and the anagogical. So thus we say there's a total of four senses of Scripture. And that's what I want to talk about now. Uh, And I'm just going to read this verbatim from the Catechism because it's so nice and clear. Number 115 of the Catechism says this, Jack, under the heading, The Senses of Scripture. 115 states, according to an ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of Scripture, the literal and the spiritual, the latter being subdivided into the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical senses. The profound concordance of the four senses guarantees all its richness to the living reading, to the living reading of Scripture in the Church. Number 116 says this, The literal sense is the meaning conveyed by the words of Scripture and discovered by the exegesis itself, following the rules of sound interpretation. All other senses of sacred Scripture are based on the literal. So that's what we look at first. And one of the 16 documents of Vatican II, titled Dei Verbum, Word of God, which was on Scripture itself and the proper means of interpretation states that very clearly. So this section of the Catechism, number 115 through 119, is a wonderful companion piece to that Vatican II document, Dei Verbum. 117 says this, the spiritual sense, thanks to the unity of God's plan, not only the text of Scripture, but also the realities and events about which it speaks, can be signs in and of themselves, so to speak. Number one, the allegorical sense. We can acquire a more profound understanding of events by recognizing their significance in Christ. Thus, the crossing of the Red Sea by the Israelites upon their escape from Egyptian slavery is a sign or type, allegorically speaking, of Christ's victory and also of Christian baptism as a sacrament. How about that? Number two, the moral sense. The events reported in Scripture ought to lead us to act justly. As St. Paul says, they were written for our instruction, to act morally wise, in other words, to do what is good, true, and beautiful. Number three, the anagogical sense, from the Greek anagogy, meaning leading, it, it leads, huh? We can view realities and events in Scripture 
again, based firstly on what the literal word says, the literal sense, we can view realities and events in terms of their eternal significance, leading us toward our true homeland. Thus, the church on earth is a sign or type or symbol or image of the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay, number 118 says this, and I, I love this, Jack. It states, quote, a medieval couplet summarizes the significance of the four senses, and it states this, this medieval couplet. The letter speaks of deeds, allegory to faith, the moral how to act, and anagogy, our destiny. Again, the letter speaks of deeds, allegory to faith, the moral how to act, and anagogy, our destiny, again, meaning leading. Number 119 sums up this section on the four senses of Scripture by saying this, It is the task of exegetes to work according to these rules towards a better understanding and explanation of the meaning of sacred Scripture in order that their research may help the church to form a firmer judgment. For, of course, all that has been said about the manner of interpreting Scripture is ultimately subject to the judgment of the church, which exercises the divinely conferred commission and ministry of watching over and interpreting the Word of God. And that's quoting Dei Verbum. And then a wonderful quote from St. Augustine in that 119 as well, quote, But I would not even believe in the Gospels had not the authority of the Catholic Church already moved me to do so. But I would not believe even in the gospel had the authority of the Catholic Church not moved me to do so. St. Augustine. So there we have it, a nice synthesis, Jack, of the four senses of Scripture, the literal and the spiritual, the two parent categories, with the spiritual being subdivided in three additional subsets. The spiritual uh, is broken down in the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. Um, you can, however, uh, leave us a question for a future mailbag show by calling our regular EWTN Open Line number. That number is 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. on any weekday or on the weekend. And you can leave your message, and we will be happy to bring it to uh, our next mailbag episode. You have the uh, you're, you've just been dying. You you we <laughs> we dying. missed yeah dying. <laughs> was that wow. a was that a slip there, Jack? No, it wasn't. It was. A, <laughs> but we we talked about Saint Augustine and Saint Monica and on the, the feast day on of, the feast day of, of the martyrdom of Saint John the Baptist, the Passion of Saint John the Baptist. So now a week later on Tuesday the fifth, so he I was not the only one that lost his head, is what we're getting <laughs> right, at yeah, here. Right, right. <laughs> so now today on September fifth, I want to talk about the beheading or it's martyrdom. Actually Saint, September twelfth, but who's uh, oh, oh, it's the twelfth. It is. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was going to air on the 5th. Okay. Well, well, nevertheless, we're going to go back to August 29th because I really want to talk about this beheading of John the Baptist memorial that we celebrate. Um, you know, in that gospel of that day, which is August 29th, that we celebrate the beheading or the martyrdom of John the Baptist, we hear the words, he, meaning Herod, he promptly dispatched an executioner ordering him to bring back the baptizer's head. That's Mark 6, verse 27. Now, Today's gospel tells us, indeed, of the beheading of St. John the Baptist on the feast day of his martyrdom. St. John, of course, was beheaded by Herod Antipas. Now, the feast days of most canonized saints are on the days of their deaths. 
So no surprise here, we also celebrate John the Baptist's nativity. In fact, along with the Blessed Mother, he's the only other saint that we celebrate both the nativity and the death of, okay? But I want to talk about his death. So the fact that we celebrate his death is really no big deal, because most canonized saints that are martyrs, we celebrate their death, symbolic of their new life in heaven. Consequently, then, martyrs' feast days are usually on the days of their actual martyrdom, their death. Yet, here's the difference. We have no other feast day at all named like the feast of the beheading of John the Baptist. We don't, for example, say or call these following feast days in this manner. The burning of Lawrence. Okay, do you get my point, Jack? The torturing of Vincent. The upside-down crucifixion of Peter. Okay, we don't, we don't name them that. The stoning of Stephen. How about this? The flaying of Bartholomew, okay? You, you, Jack, you get the point. We don't say the beheading of Thomas More. We don't say the arrowing of Sebastian. We don't say the crucifixions of St. Peter Baptist, Paul Meeke, and their companions. Yet Holy Mother Church does name the feast day, along with the martyrdom of St. John the Baptist on August 29th, and properly so, she does name it the beheading of John the Baptist, in some of her documents. Why? Why is this? Well, this may be because beheading is one of the devil's major strategies against God's holy people. After all, it's the battle for our minds, is it not? And the devil is trying to behead us spiritually by conforming our minds to this age, as Romans 12 verse 2 states. For example, husbands are the heads of their wives in the proper sense, that is, husbands are called to be the Christ figure and the priest figure of the home. Uh, Parents are the heads of their children, pastors are the heads of their churches, and leaders are the heads of their ministries. Yet the devil tries to spiritually behead marriages by keeping husbands spiritually immature. Okay, The devil tries to spiritually behead children by encouraging parents to be spiritually irresponsibly, uh, or or the modern-day culture encouraging students and and children to go against their parents. Uh, The devil tries to behead churches by leading pastors into serious sin. And the devil tries to spiritually behead ministries by making their leaders worldly wise and spiritual fools, as St. Paul would say. In other words, with all this beheading going on in today's culture, heads are rolling, I like to say, right? (laughs) And not in a good way either. So just, you know, my listeners today on Open Line Tuesday, be on guard, repent, Obey the Lord always, and whatever your vocation, don't let the devil behead you in your vocation and state in life. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. But it is indeed Talking Faith, Family, and Fellowship on Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, if you enjoy EWTN's bookmark brief with Doug Keck, you can receive weekly emails, including a very short video blog. It features the author giving a short synopsis of their work in his or her own words. Simply visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Again, we are not taking your phone calls today. Um, It's a very special mailbag edition, but you can give us a call at our regular number any weekday after 4 p.m. 
uh, Central Time, and you can leave a message for us that may make its way to a future mailbag show, and that number is 833-288-3986. Let's take a listen to one of those listener comment line calls now. Chelsea, Madeira, California. Question is, I'm wondering at what is classified as venial sins. Thank you. Okay, great question, Josie. Josie wants a list. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what she's probably getting at. Uh, what classifies as a venial sin is something that has one or two of the elements missing from the three requirements for a mortal sin. So, Josie, for a mortal sin, we say that three things need to be present. Grave matter, done with fullness of knowledge that it's grave matter, and done with deliberate consent of your will. And the church teaches that it only takes one of those three to be missing, to make it a venial sin. It could be that two are missing of any of those three, and of course you would still have a venial sin. If all three are absent, you probably don't even have a venial sin. You have just a daily fault or weakness um, that just needs to be worked on to overcome it, right? Uh, But a venial sin is when one or two of those three elements that constitute a mortal sin are absent. Now, you can also have something that's objectively mortal, but because the person, in other words, it's always and everywhere objectively a mortal sin, but because the person indeed carried it out, but one or two of those three elements were missing, it was subjectively venial, okay? So, you know, usually the conscience kicks in, and we know that adultery is wrong, we know that robbing a bank is wrong, but there could be something that is objectively a mortal sin that the person really didn't know. You know, a a young girl who had absolutely no faith upbringing, had a horrendous childhood, uh, no parents, uh, orphanages all her life, and and she turns 16, and and the turn of events, she finds herself pregnant out of wedlock, and without even an an afterthought, she goes and, and obtains an abortion. Well, objectively speaking, that's a mortal sin, but subjectively speaking, This girl has had no, and I mean no, moral training whatsoever. So in that case, we say it's objectively mortal, but subjectively venial, okay? Uh, And so there's that distinction as well. But a great question, uh, uh, Josie, and I want to recommend that you go uh, to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, where this is more greatly spelled out, numbers 1855, 1856, and 1857 regarding mortal sin, and venial sin comes right after that. Mortal sin is a grave infraction of the law of God that destroys the divine life in the soul of the sinner. That is to say, it depletes this, the soul of sanctifying grace, constituting a turning away from God. For a sin to be mortal, three conditions must be met grave matter, full knowledge of the evil of the act, and full consent of the will. So there you have it, Josie, 1855 through 1857. Uh, Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. We're not taking your phone calls today. Okay, here's a great email that is going to clear up something, give you the opportunity to help clear up something that I know is prevalent out there uh, in the Catholic community. Gene writes in, Father Wade, I have been away from the church for several years. Many years ago, I was married in the church, and after 25 years of marriage, I got a divorce. At that time, I distanced myself from the church because I knew that I could not receive the sacraments. A few years later, I got remarried, of course not in the Catholic Church. I know that this marriage is not recognized, but I am am remarried nonetheless, and have been married to this person for six years now. This whole time, I have missed going to Mass and have been very torn. I want to go, but I know I cannot receive the sacraments, so I don't. 
I'm wondering, can someone like me, divorced and remarried, can we ever come back to the church? Can we ever come back to the sacraments? If I go to confession and confess these things, the divorce and remarriage, what kind of absolution can I receive? I'm not going to divorce my husband now, so I assume that means I can never come back to the sacraments. The gospel this past Sunday was all about receiving Holy Communion and being called to partake of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Am I forever going to be in grave sin and never be able to receive communion again? Well, first of all, when you divorced your wife but had not remarried yet... Um, Husband. When you divorced... Uh, this so, is Jean, a female. Oh, uh, Jean, a female. Okay, so thank you for that correction there, Jack. Uh, when Jean, when when you divorced your husband, and yet had not remarried, and presumably were living chastely in those immediate months or years after your divorce, you could have received Holy Communion, provided you were living chastely, because in the eyes of the Catholic Church, you were still, uh, you were still married. There's no annulment in place. You're still married, but you're living chastely. Now, you would have to confess the civil divorce, and I have a, a, a short little read on that that I want to I read here in answering this question, but that's the first thing I want to make. As long as you're, you're, you're living uh, uh, chastely, you can okay, receive the sacraments of regular Eucharist and regular confession. All right, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is, once you remarried the person, now this would be more unlikely because you remarried the person with an intent to be intimate with them, um, but even if you're in a second marriage outside the church that is not valid, provided you're living chastely, provided you're living chastely, again, you can still receive the Eucharist. It's when you're not living chastely that you uh, have to... Uh, refrain, you, you have a moral duty and obligation to refrain from receiving the sacraments. So, you know, that's, that's the, the main thing to remember. But even once you acquired the simple civil marriage outside the church, um, provided you were living chastely with that person in that civil marriage, you could still receive the sacraments. So those are the two main things, that, that you want to confess the divorce, eat, whether you were at fault or not, whether you, you're the one who initiated the divorce or not, confess the divorce. Maybe you were an abandoned spouse. Still confess the divorce, but let the confessor know that you were the abandoned spouse, but that you still want to confess the divorce because you're still a party to it. And then you, you clear your conscience of that regard, and provided you're living chastely, you can still go ahead and receive uh, communion. Now, also, Father Wade, the fact, you know, the possibility of normalization in the eyes of the Church of her current marriage is not outside the realm of possibility. No, it's it's very possible to have the civil marriage sacramentalized, I like to say, within the church, provided you go through the proper channels for that to be accomplished, uh, namely beginning with the annulment process of the first marriage, provided the first marriage was valid in the Catholic Church. Okay, uh, if it was, if the first marriage was never valid in the Catholic Church, you still need to let the annulment process know that there was a prior existing marriage that was never valid, and that's recorded as part of the process. But annulment per se doesn't have to be gotten in that case because the first one was never valid to begin with. 
God bless you. We appreciate that oh, email today. Go ahead, Father. Yes, thank you, Jack. This is what I wanted to to mention about the need to confess the divorce, whether you're the party who initiated it or not. Listen to this. Regarding divorced and remarried Catholics and receiving Holy Communion along with living chastely, canonically, the petitioner of the divorce should have reception of Holy Communion deferred to them, not denied, but deferred, until he or she repents publicly for abandoning the innocent spouse. The Catechism of the Catholic Church is clear that divorce is a grave sin against nature, and one can be an innocent spouse who has had the divorce foisted upon them. And this is found in number 2386, wherein we read this. As stated in Catechism of the Catholic Church number 2386, Quote, it can happen that one of the spouses is the innocent victim of a divorce decreed by civil law. This spouse, therefore, has not contravened the moral law. There is a considerable difference between a spouse who has sincerely tried to be faithful to the sacrament of marriage and is unjustly abandoned and the one who, through his own grave fault, destroys a canonically valid marriage. So, even though the innocent spouse who has the divorce foisted upon them, there's no sin there to confess. I would still mention to the confessor that you were the innocent victim in a petition divorce that was foisted upon you, because at least it helps the confessor understand your situation. And any venality that might be there on your part as the innocent spouse can still be forgiven. So it doesn't hurt to mention it to the, to the, to the confessor. And totally in the catechism, you want to read uh, the paragraph numbers as well, number 2382 through 2386. 2382 through 2386. You know, and, and, and Father Wade, I think it, you know, we, we need to reemphasize this point, I think, from time to time. You know, the annulment process is not Catholic divorce. Correct. It is a thorough, a very thorough and spiritual yeah. examination of whether or not that the, marriage was ever sacramental to begin with. That's exactly right. It's not yeah. changing anything. No. It's merely identifying something for what it is. Now, that being said, marriage preparation in our culture, especially here in the United States, is so poor yeah. that... You know, we're not just handing annulments out like candy. All we are doing, really, in many cases, is holding a mirror up to the poor catechesis that takes place before people think they're entering into a marriage. That's right. That's right. And that's why it's officially titled the annulment, quote-unquote. It's why it's officially titled a decree of nullity. It's declaring that the marriage was null, and i.e. void, from the very beginning. It was never, ever sacramental to begin with because something was lacking, either in canonical form or in psychology or uh, finances, intent, will, uh, ill will and intention towards keeping, about keeping something from the other spouse, whatever. I'm not a canon lawyer in general, nor am I a canon lawyer of marriage in particular, but, but something was present that voided the sacramentality of that marriage the day that it did take place in the Catholic Church, even if it was 50 years ago. It, it, there could be something that 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 de- that made it invalid, and and so the decree of nullity is granted. And Jack, I, I now that I'm graciously corrected, and I know that today's show, this one right now that we're in, is airing on the 12th. I might add, this is the importance of marriage retreats. Uh, next weekend, uh, I'll be with you and John Ed at the beautiful retreat house in Malvern, in Pennsylvania. And giving a marriage retreat, uh, giving the homilies for it in one talk, and you and Johnette giving your talks. Uh, and this is why marriage retreats are so important to help the couple live that sacrament. 
you know, you, uh, in as a condition of your vocation, are required canonically to make a retreat annually. Yeah. Married couples in their vocation ought to do the same doggone yeah. thing. It's it's not required, but they should do the same doggone thing because it's it's prudence and it's it's good and it's true. And not only that, I know a couple in Hansville, a young couple, married under ten years. Not only do they take a retreat together annually, but and they have two children so far, three children so far. But once during the the rest of the year, he takes a private retreat and she takes a private retreat. So two retreats for each spouse, an individual one and then one with your spouse. Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of Open Line Tuesday. Not taking your calls again, but if you'd like to be part of a future show, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we're not going to be taking your phone calls today. Father Wade, were I not as old as I am, (laughs) were I not married, and if I felt a call to itinerant missionary preaching, what should I do? What should you do? You, sh- I, I thought you were going to ask, would you take me, is what I thought you were going to ask. And I would say, well, that all depends. I'm not going to put that much pressure on you. <laughs> what would you do? You would go to fathersofmercy.com. You know, what are some of the signs of a Fathers of Mercy vocation, Jack? Well, I like to say, as a former vocation director myself, we Fathers of Mercy are looking for good, solid Catholic men who are unabashedly in love with our Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the Church, men who want to help transform a veritable culture of death into a culture of life and love by showing and giving it the mercy of God. We seek virtuous men for the Fathers of Mercy, men who, despite their own failings, have experienced the mercy of God themselves and so are able to give that great gift of God's mercy to others, precisely because they themselves have experienced it. Men who want to live joyfully the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience, all while living and sharing a common life of prayer, fraternity, camaraderie, and work for the apostolate of itinerant missionary preaching and the staffing of rural parishes. Now, within that itinerant missionary preaching, Jack, probably our our most common work is the week-long parish mission. So I'm often asked when I'm not preaching a parish mission, but I am somewhere preaching something else, maybe a day-long conference or a a day-long retreat, like a father-son retreat or mother-daughter retreat, uh, I'll often be asked, well, what exactly is a parish mission? Well, I, I, I first say, well, you know, our Protestant brothers and sisters use the phrase revival. But in our Catholic tradition, we use mission, which comes from the Latin missio, which means sent, right? Because the hope is after the parish mission, you'll be so pumped up, you will be sent to make yourself a better Catholic and make others around you better Catholic. So what is a parish mission like? Well, it's a fantastic opportunity for the people of the parish and surrounding community to come together for a five-night presentation on a particular theme or topic of Catholic teaching. Pope St. John Paul II once said that for the periodical renewal of a parish, nothing beats a parish mission. With such things as daily Eucharistic adoration, ample opportunity for confession, and a solemn closing Mass, along with daily Mass, but a solemn closing Mass on the last night, a parish mission is a fantastic and great opportunity, Jack, for both individual renewal and parish-wide renewal. It provides a wonderful opportunity for parish-wide strengthening 
of the church's teaching. So, if you're a young man contemplating a, a, a priestly vocation with an active missionary preaching apostolate, go to fathersofmercy.com. Check out our website. It's very user-friendly, and you can navigate through that. Also, think about emailing our new vocation director, Father Joseph Morgan, great young priest, one of our fairly newly ordained guys. Father Joseph Morgan, you can contact him at vocations at fathersofmercy.com. That's the word vocation with an S at the end of it. Vocations at fathersofmercy.com. Let's take a listen now to one of our listener comment line calls. John, uh, New Jersey. I'm calling. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life within you. And yet the church doesn't give the wine out most of the time, the blood. So how are many Christians going to be saved? That's a that's a great question. So talk about the literal sense of scripture. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, it's it's a great question. It's a, it's a great liturgical question, because the Catholic Church teaches and always has taught that the 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 blood is in the body and the body is in the blood. So, for example, if you have a person who's truly celiac who cannot receive gluten products at all. So they can't receive the, not even a low-gluten host. Uh, Non-gluten hosts are not permitted during the celebration of the Eucharist. They have to be low-gluten as opposed to non-gluten. But even if they're not able to receive a low-gluten host because they're so celiac in their condition, and they receive only the precious blood, even that suffices for the fullness of Holy Communion because the precious body is in the precious blood, and the precious blood is in the precious body. Now that said, the Church does teach that as far as signs go. Now remember, we believe that the Eucharist is, per se, through the miracle of transubstantiation, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. But because the accidents remain, that is to say the characteristics of bread and wine remain, it still tastes uh, tastes like uh, bread and wine, it still touches like bread and wine, it, it still looks like bread and wine, uh, it still smells like bread and wine. Uh, ah, but we heard the words of consecration, and faith comes from hearing, we're told in the New Testament, faith and we hear the words of consecration. So even though the accidents and, or the characteristics of bread and wine remain, we believe that through the miracle of transubstantiation, that at the words of consecration, also known as the words of institution, no longer ordinary bread and wine, but truly, really, and substantially the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ— there's still signs. It's because the accidents remain, the characteristics of bread and wine remain, we could stay there, say there's still signs, even though it's the real thing within the sign, it's still signs. So the Church does teach that although the precious body is in the precious blood, and the precious blood is in the precious body, and that's why you only have to receive one species, you don't have to receive both species for a fuller Holy Communion. That said, the Church does teach that the fuller sign is present when both are offered, but both do not need to be offered. That's the Church's teaching. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of Open Line Tuesday, not taking your phone calls today. Matt's in Wisconsin, and he writes in, Our parish had adoration on the Feast of Divine Mercy. The assembly first prayed the rosary and then the chaplet. When the chaplet was prayed, the leaders did not pray the introductory Our Father, Hail Mary, and Creed, presumably since we prayed those at the start of the rosary. What is your opinion of this practice? If one prays the rosary and immediately follows it with the chaplet, do you think it's still pious to skip the introductory prayers so as not to lapse into rote praying of the creed, etc., and rather to focus on the main prayers of the chaplet? Well, he asked the question, which I think is very good, knowing that it's not a matter of whether or not anything was invalid there, because it involves here pietistic prayer. 
prayer of piety. We're talking the rosary and the chaplet of divine mercy here, uh, pietistic prayer. So it's not a question of something rubrically that could possibly invalidate, say, the Mass or invalidate a baptism because the, the proper words of the Trinity weren't used, something like that. You know, so uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear he phrased the question how he phrased it. I myself, I'm a perfectionist when it comes to things like this. So <laughs> Jack's laughing. He knows that I'm a perfectionist. So I, I, what can I say? I'm a father of mercy, right? <laughs> so I would say, look, you're going to pray the rosary. Pray the whole rosary. Begin with the opening prayers and do close with the proper closing prayers with the five decades in between. And then, hey, you're going to pray the chaplet. Pray the chaplet. That, that, by the way, that's, that's, not, that's not an Italian uh, uh, accent. That's my Portuguese accent. You're going to pray the chaplet. Pray the whole chaplet. Do those, those uh, entrance prayers, the, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, followed by the Creed, followed by the, the five decades of the chaplet, then closing with three times, Holy God, Holy Mighty One, Holy Immortal One, have mercy on us and on the whole world. So I'm a big advocate of, look, you're going to pray those two beautiful, staple, beaded prayers. They're so staple in the life of Holy Mother Church, the Bride of Christ. Then on Divine Mercy Sunday, if we're going to pray them side by side, which is fine, uh, include their opening prayers and their closing prayers in full. Or a better thing to do would be to do just that, but put something else in between the two, like a moment of silent meditation, especially if the Blessed Sacrament is, is already exposed in the monstrance during at that point during the Divine Mercy Sunday celebration. Then when the rosary is completely done with its proper opening prayers and closing prayers, have five to ten minutes of silent adoration. And then go into the chaplet and begin the chaplet with its proper opening prayers and closing prayers. And that had that beautiful 10 minutes of silence in between. And for the schedule that was made up of the ceremony, uh, the, 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 the devotion of the Divine Mercy Sunday, that particular Sunday, it'll say there, we will now go into 10 minutes of sacred silence as we adore the Blessed Sacrament. Or 15 minutes, a quarter of an hour of silence as we adore the Blessed Sacrament. So that during that silence, the people in the pews aren't thinking, okay, what are we doing next? Why is it so silent? No, it says it in their program. We're now doing 10 to 15 15 minutes of silent Eucharistic adoration between the rosary and the chaplet. Beautiful. You're explaining to the people what's being done. And before you know it, that beautiful Divine Mercy hour of devotion towards the Divine Mercy on Divine Mercy Sunday has come to a beautiful completion. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. No phone calls today. Paula writes in, I would like to know what the church teaches on young adults living together. The question is specific to having a daughter and her boyfriend, soon to be fiance, living at her parents' home. They would have separate bedrooms and both parents are home every day. The dad has a home business and the mom is a homemaker. The parents would be allowing this situation to help them save money for a house of their own. The daughter is 24 and works from home and the boyfriend is 25 and just received his doctorate in physical therapy and will be working outside the home. Both are practicing Catholics and have been living a chaste life. The family wants to do the right thing and not be sinning or causing scandal. Thank you for your attention to this question. I enjoy your show, and thank God you have this ministry that touches many lives. Yeah, the family wants to make sure they're not doing anything that's sinful and not causing scandal. That second one is especially important here because those parents know that those two young adults in their 20s, professional young adults, are living chastely. So that's not the issue of sin. She says they're living, or the parent who writes this, Jack, says they're living chastely. So obviously it's safe to presume that they have their own sleeping quarters, bedroom quarters. Okay, so can it technically be done and not be sinful? Yes, it, it surely can. I, I know two great families that are both very, very solidly Catholic who have permitted this. 
And the, the two respective marriages from this situation are very, very solid, holy marriages. So yes, it can be done without sin. Two things need to be taken into consideration here. Number one is, are we putting the young couple in a near occasion of sin by being in such close proximity together? That would need to be questioned. If I was the confessor of either one of those two young people and they were saying, Father, this is a hypothetical situation, of course, but they were saying to me, Father, I have this opportunity to live with my future in-laws and my future spouse. Is that wise? And I would say, well, where are you at in virtue? Obviously, you're going to have separate sleeping quarters. Where you are in virtue, are you sound and solid in your virtue that you're not going to be tempted when the two of you are there at the parent's house alone? We have a duty here to protect from sin. Remember, we have a duty as Catholic Christians. We believe very strongly we have a duty not only to avoid sin, but to avoid what are called the near occasions of sin. So I think the questioning of, of where they are at in their virtue growth needs to be questioned. It can be done without sin, like with these two families I know, but it's going to be very, very rare that it can be done, because I think the temptation will be there. And the second thing, which the parent actually asks at the end of their question, Jack, which I admire them for that, they say, we not only want to cause sin, make sure we're not sinning here and causing sin, we want to make sure we're not causing scandal. And remember, we have a duty to protect from scandal, and so that would have to be taken into account as well. You know, I can give a little personal anecdote to this. When uh, Johnette and I were courting, you were our spiritual director, and uh, I lived in Birmingham at the time. She lived in Pinellas County in Florida at the time. So in order for us to spend time together, we would have to travel back and forth. Uh, That got expensive over the course of a courtship. You know, we each had a 3,000-square-foot house that we shared with our former spouses before they passed away. And we each had bedrooms on opposite ends of both of those houses. And in an interest of not spending a fortune on hotel rooms and things, we asked you if you thought it would be okay if we were in the opposite sides of houses when we were doing this. And you said, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. 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 So, so you, we have a duty, you know, I think uh, uh, even even our professions come into play here, uh, you know, and how how well are we known? Is there a greater chance of scandal because we are more well known, that type of thing. So prudence reigns supreme. I, I want to make it clear it can be done without sin. I, I'm not denying that fact. Should it be done is another question. That's where you take into account th- their growth in virtue. Where are they at in their growth in virtue? Uh, the, uh, are we putting them in the near occasion of sin? And then also the possibility of giving scandal to either a lesser or greater degree. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Hi, I'm calling in with Father Wade. Uh, my name's Michael in Cincinnati. I wanted to see if, what it takes to start a lay apostolate around arbor culture. I have a Franciscan history with the OFMs, and I have become a leading certified arborist and would like to see a contemplative type of intentional life around men and women, but men particularly, growing together as brothers in arbor culture in the new evangelization and just wanted to get some advice and help on this. Thank you. Well, that's a, that's a great and a very interesting question. Um, you know, I, I'm the one who oversees the grounds of the Fathers of Mercy. So, uh, Are you I'm a the, tree hugger, Father <laughs> yeah, Wade? Well, I, 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 I am the one in charge of 
seeing what trees should be chopped down. Actually, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and I get in charge. I get in, in touch with our arborist, who's a great man, has a great business there in the in the greater uh, Bowling Green, Russellville, and Auburn area of Kentucky, and uh, he does great work for us. And he's a very Christian man. He's not a Catholic, but a very strong Christian, and I enjoy working with him very much. Um, in fact, truth be known, I worked with him just a couple of weeks ago. We've had so much rain. One of our pine trees that aligns our black fencing along in front of our chapel started leaning because the root system got so soaked loose, yeah. and loose mm-hmm. that it was actually leaning. Well, on top of that, during my walk around the stations, of the, our stations of the cross loop, which is asphalt paving in a big loop with the with the fourteen stations of the cross, I noticed that there was likewise stump rot at the bottom of that tree that was starting to lean. So that was contributing to the lean as well, let alone all the rain, right? And I checked with our superior general. He says, oh, yeah, there's no doubt. It has to come down. Otherwise, we're asking for an accident. You know, on Sundays, a lot of our families or the children will go out playing out in that area uh, around the stations of the cross loop, and the parents take a walk with their families even before Mass. And so that's a dangerous thing. So I'm thinking that maybe he's asking for himself as an arborist and other arborists to form a Christian evangelization apostolate or... Is that how you took it? Well, he wants to grow in spirituality through this work of, you know... Planting trees and and taking down diseased trees and and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, whenever we want to start any apostolate in the Church, the Church does ask that we have a priest chaplain to guide us. That's very, very important so that we don't get... um, off kilter in regards to church teaching or canonically if we're doing something wrong we shouldn't be doing uh like being cautious about having the word catholic used in your title as canon law instructs us and so forth because you don't want to speak for the entire church that type of thing so the first thing you want to do is just put together through your prayer time that you've that you've dedicated to this write down what you believe would be the main points of the apostolate of 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 establishing such an uh, establishing such an apostolate what would your main goals and objectives be because you want something to show the priest that you're going to ask if he'll be your chaplain you want to let him know where you're coming from a, a good starting point for this and you sound like a good practicing catholic who receives the two sacraments out of the seven that can be received over and over again with much frequency eucharist and confession so i'm presuming you receive both of those regularly whoever is your regular confessor maybe you can start with him by sharing with him what your bulleted points of goals and objectives are for such an arborist apostolate with within the christian catholic tradition and then get some pointers and advice from him. And then if, it, if all is seemingly going well, maybe ask him to be your chaplain. But if you don't want your confessor to be your chaplain, then maybe ask another priest to be your chaplain. Um, you're not going to have a hard time finding a priest who loves the outdoors, I'll tell you that. Uh, you're talking to a whitewater rafter right here. <laughs> but, uh, but the thing is, uh, you want to do it within the proper juridical confines of what canon law asks, which includes having a chaplain. And before you even go seeking out a chaplain or even a priest that you want to share your ideas with, you want to have those ideas down. So I think you mentioned you were, you were married in your question, so, or you had a family. So maybe ask your family for some pointers or just start with what's at the fore of your own way of thinking here for this arborist uh, apostolate. Uh, Christian-wise, what are your goals and objectives to come together as community and pray? Obviously, God's creation would somehow be involved there. The replenishing of God's creation with following the taking out of diseased or fallen trees. So you not only want to take down the bad, but you want to put up the good. Um, You know, so it's not only dealing with creation, it's dealing with charity with your neighbor and whatnot, Uh, proper business ethics, um, you know, proper advertising ethics, 
uh, things like that, and then and then sh- share that with the priest and go from there. But I, I would definitely want a chaplain from the get-go. Saints Alive is a radio theater podcast for kids that tells the stories of the saints, full of adventure, heroism, virtue, and humor. You can hear Saints Alive as well as faith-filled podcasts from all our friends and affiliates across the nations, all in one place and all free at EWTN Podcast Central. Simply visit EWTN.com radio and click on podcast. Grant wants to know, could you explain why different countries can have different holy days of obligation? Yeah, that's a great question, because different countries have different foundings of feasts. Maybe a patronal saint feast, that's a holy day of obligation for that particular national conference of bishops, especially if it's a smaller country. They'll make their patron saint of the entire conference of bishops for that particular smaller country, a holy day of obligation. Then you have the the, the, the main ones that are across the universal teaching of the Church, universal liturgical jurisdiction of the Church, like the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption. Those are staple, namely because they're the two Marian dogmas that we have, and so they're, they're, they're practiced as holy days per se globally. But then you might have some that are definitely a holy day of obligation, but they're transferred to the nearest Sunday. And they're, or they're done away with entirely because of another national holiday at that time. So these, these are the different mitigating factors, I guess I would call them, that would, that would uh, uh, dictate which country has which holy days of obligation. But of course, there are those staple ones that everyone celebrates, like the two Marian ones. Brenda wants to know, since Mary was born without original sin, was she capable of sinning? She was capable of sinning, but never did because of prevenient graces she received not to, precisely because she was immaculately conceived. That's the shortest answer to the question. We, re- we believe that Mary was not only conceived without original sin, she was preserved from original sin, but because she still needed to be saved, she needed a Savior. So she, where we benefit from the cross historically after the cross takes place, Mary benefits from the cross before the cross takes place historically. Um, so she, 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 was, she experienced her assumption after the death of Christ on the cross, but she was preserved from the original sin before the cross took place. So I, I said the cross, I should have said the Paschal Mystery. Where we benefit from the Paschal Mystery, historically speaking, after the Paschal Mystery takes place, in our redemption, regarding our redemption, Mary was redeemed and benefited from the Paschal Mystery before the Paschal Mystery took place. And of course, the Paschal Mystery is that four-event event of our Lord's Passion, Death, Resurrection, Ascension to Heaven. But on top of that preservation of the original sin, she also received extra graces, what we call prevenient grace. Prevenient meaning they come before. Prevenio, they come before. Pre, before venio come. They're prevenient graces, they're prevenio graces, if you will, that come before, while she's living her life, to protect her from falling into sin, venial and mortal. But, but that's because she was conceived without the original sin. So Mary still needed to be saved, but received the, uh, uh, the, the, was immaculately conceived in her mother's womb, St. Anne, preserved from the original sin, and then on top of that, received prevenient graces which protected her from ever sinning. Mary never, ever sinned mortally or venially. But she still had free will. She still had free will. That is exactly right. Rhonda writes in, when John the Baptist was baptizing in the name of the Holy Spirit, where did he get this from? Did he worship a diune god? Well, he was baptizing 
with water, Jesus baptized in the Holy Spirit with water. So John's baptism was a purification from sin, not calling on the Holy Spirit per se. It was a cleansing baptism. It was a cleansing of sin baptism. But it was Jesus who established the baptism with water as a cleansing in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus brought to perfection, we could say, and many of the church fathers do say this, Jesus brought to perfection what John the Baptist was inclined and felt called to do. And Dave wants to know, why do Catholics pray to dead saints? <laughs> because they're saints, they're living and well uh, with their uh, uh, faculties of the soul in heaven, although their bodies have not been reunited with them yet. That won't happen until the end of time at the second coming of Christ, when their particular judgment is ratified at the general judgment. Their bodies will be reunited, but they are alive. They have obtained the crown that does not wither, St. Paul teaches. You know, I, I love that line. He, he says, you know, athlete, athletes do all kinds of things, and for what? to win a crown of leaves that withers after three days, but we Christians strive for a crown that remains absolutely imperishable. And remember, too, the saints in heaven are part of the doctrine of the communion of saints. So because they're in heaven, they're members of the church triumphant. Those of us still living on earth fighting the good fight, living our, our baptism and our confirmation, are members of the church militant. And the holy souls in purgatory who are assured heaven, um, they're members of the church suffering, also referred to as members of the church penitent. And I like to remind my listeners of that because we often forget that the holy souls in purgatory can also be called members of the church penitent because they're suffering their purgation right now. And that is a type of penance because at the time of their earthly death, they had not yet atoned for the temporal punishment due for their already forgiven mortal and venial sin. And so we want to die, hopefully, not only with our mortal and venial sin forgiven, but also with the atonement for those sins that have already been forgiven, already atoned for, so that we can thereby go straight to heaven when we die. That's what God's plan A for us. And I make this very clear in my 2017 book, uh, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell, a study of the church's eschatology. But, but the saints in heaven, yes, they're dead, earthly speaking, they're dead. But they are alive in heaven, and they're members of the church militant, praying for the, excuse me, church triumphant, praying for the church militant, and praying for the church suffering. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for listening to this very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. God bless.